and then I get my first Vegas experience where they put on a crown and I'm suffering in pain and they're just giving me more pain pills and then I go back and he does a root canal and the root canal is, stinks so bad that the whole room starts to puke. That's how rotted the, the root was. So then I'm like, oh my God, this guy just let me suffer for months without telling me it was, I needed a root canal. <laughs> he just kept giving me more pain pills. And then I come down with celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disorder, which sort of demonstrates itself as a uh, sort of like acid reflux. So I suffer from celiac disease, not knowing it. I'm puking up bile at night and all my teeth enamel are becoming rotten. As a result of the celiac disease going undiagnosed for five years, I come down with cancer of the stomach lining. And that's really where I start to figure everything out. That's, that's the beginning of my journey. Um, because once the cancer covered up the gut villi, I stopped taking in nutrition and I started to starve. And by the time I by the time I figure out what's going on, I'm in stage four stomach cancer, and basically I've got three months to live. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. Twenty-three percent of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm podcast host Scott Simpson. In this episode of Medical Error Interviews, I chat with David Moore. David does health differently. When David was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer and given three months to live, he didn't follow the usual medical path of radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery. When David's mentor named him in her medical directive, he pushed back hard against the surgeons who wanted to give her more high-cost, high-risk surgeries to run up their profit. And when David's dentist performed procedures without David's consent, he went public and to the state governor to expose dental board corruption. In part one of this two-part interview, David shares how an undiagnosed illness led to stomach cancer and how he cured that cancer without toxic medications. 
You can support the podcast by subscribing on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, all the major podcast platforms carry medical error interviews. And you can support the podcast by subscribing and leaving a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a premium patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error? Or are you living with a complex chronic illness? Perhaps you're dealing with LGBT issues or any of life's challenges. You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with patient advocate David Moore and a note of caution that some folks may be triggered by David's experience with the healthcare system. Great. Thanks, David. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Wow. So, I mean, I guess from what everybody tells me, I have one of the last great childhoods, you know, where we had total freedom. (laughs) So I was born in 1970. I grew up in Cocoa Beach, Florida, an idyllic situation. Um, The 70s were, to me, the greatest decade. Everybody was broke. All the family was living at home. Everyone was eating spaghetti because everyone was broke. <laughs> everyone was paying out in line to get gas. It was just, I think the 70s were a great decade. Um, but my childhood at home was a lot like an emotional Vietnam. So I suffered like serious childhood trauma from emotional abuse, emotional neglect. Um, I had a babysitter who molested me. I mean, it just went on and on and on. All my brothers were like drug addicts and highly abusive. I have three older brothers. My mother was raped by her father for like a period of 10 years. So she was so messed up in the head. She suffered from narcissistic personality disorder and she took it out on all of her kids. And it was just this total emotional Vietnam is basically the only way to describe it. But On the outside, no one knew what was going on behind closed doors, and narcissists are very, very clever. (laughs) So you couldn't really tell what's going on. And my dad was an aloof engineer. Um, He worked for NASA. He, like, oversaw Werner von Braun. He designed rockets. And so then he needs to say he was never home. (laughs) So, But I loved him and adored him, and he was a great guy. But he never said anything, and he was just a different home. So as a result of all that, you know, you just sort of like, sort of left with this um, struggling adulthood um, until you figure it out. And that struggling adulthood really has to do with the traumatic brain wiring and how we're more susceptible to addiction and how basically we've never experienced unconditional love and how we can go into cascading organ failure in our 40s. So there's all these Basically, childhood trauma is the scourge upon the world um, because it creates adult sickness in such an extreme way that they pass it on to their children if they decide to have children. 
So it's, it becomes this exponential problem. And I would say right now in America, we're looking at about 40% of Americans suffering from childhood trauma. But other than that, I mean, everything was great. Like I really had an idyllic childhood. I just never was home. I made sure that I was always out playing. Um, I, they would always have to try and find me. I was always with my friends. I would study my friends' parents and try to understand why everyone was so messed up. My, so my whole focus became about empathizing with everyone and trying to understand what was going on. So by the time I was 15, I decided to dedicate my life to helping others. Um, and I sort of realized at 15 that, you know, all my friends' parents are messed up and they're messed up now. And like I had a neighbor who was, uh, had a dad who was bipolar or another neighbor whose dad was un unemployed, um, another uh, kid, neighbor, whose mom beat the living shit out of him for just looking at a Christmas package before Christmas. I mean, just kind of crazy alcoholics, drug addicts. I mean, and they were all rich white people. It's like no one was poor, okay? <laughs> it didn't make any sense. Nothing was connecting the dots. I couldn't get it until I hit my 40s and realized that, oh, guess what? My parents suffered childhood trauma too, you know? And that's, and all my friends' parents suffered childhood trauma. And that's the reason they're so messed up. And then you just sort of go through that whole thing and like, oh my God, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? So anyways, that was my childhood. So and, David. Um, yeah. Uh, it sounds like you took a different path than your brothers. What helped you go on this different path? Wow. So um, my mother's abuse to me happened when I was, um, it was extreme neglect. So she didn't want to have me. So I was a mistake and um, she didn't want anything to do with me. So as a result of that, she neglected me and I was sit, I was in the crib and I remember my nightmares and going into a black hole. But basically what ended up happening is the neural connections in my brain um, didn't make because I wasn't nurtured. And those neural connections basically because they didn't make um, are cause autism. So I have a, a form of autism um, and that's what autism is. It's just a bunch of missed brain connections. And that's why it's different in every individual. You know, So my autism enabled me to detach from my mother's abuse. So she would have to call my name a thousand times before I even understood she was calling my name. I mean, I remember just totally being off in La La Land whenever I was home. <laughs> I remember them thinking, no, God, this kid's retarded. They sent me to different things and no one could figure out what was going on back in the 70s. <laughs> so they didn't really know autism. So, um, so that, that's really how I made it through that. And then I really focused on um, really helping my friends and really being there for my friends and getting them away from the adults. And that's basically how I got through it. Hmm. So sort of the polar opposite of what you were witnessing is the direction you went. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And often when children are in chaotic, abusive homes, if there's one adult who's grounded and reliable and that they can trust, be it a relative or a teacher, that's often enough to help them sort of survive the trauma. 
it sounds like maybe your father was that person for sure i mean he he adored me and worshiped me and he was just the kindest man but again he never talked he never guided in any words all his examples were his energy the energy he projected he was very stolid he was very <laughs> very aloof very you know just very yeah just do you suspect that he was perhaps on the spectrum as well? Yeah, that's what they're saying. In Germany, the studies show that the engineers are the ones that give birth to the autistic kids. Um, yeah, I would definitely say he was a loner. He never socialized. Um, I didn't come to find out until after he died that he was most likely in the Office of Strategic Services back in World War II and that he was in the CIA um, the whole time. And that's probably the reason <laughs> because he, he was, he never communicated. He always stayed aloof. Um, he never told me what his job was and his non-official cover was you know, like electrical engineer. And he worked for all these defense contractors and I was just like, you know, so yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think he was on the spectrum for sure. So Thankfully, you survived that. You've developed the skills that you've carried forward in your adulthood, lots of empathy and sort of advocacy. Um, but we wanted to talk today about your experience with the dental industry. Ah. What's the sort of background that led you having these experiences? Okay, so this is awesome. So basically, in my childhood, I told you about my autism neglect. Now, that neglect caused me to scream a lot, <laughs> you know? So I was, uh, I was screaming, let me get this thing out of the way. I was screaming a lot and I would wake up in these nightmares and this screaming created this high arch narrow palate, um, which created a cranial malformation, which means my bite is totally unique and that if anyone tries to adjust my bite, that um, I am unable to adapt because of my cranial malformation. Uh, the cranial malformation, what does that mean in layman's terms? Or draw me a picture. Okay, okay. So the cranial malformation, they call it left side bending rotation. So imagine a normal head and then imagine there being an indentation on one side and a curve out on another side, okay? So they call that left side bending rotation. Now that left side bending rotation made it so that my left and right mandibular joints were uniquely placed in the sense that they were functional and not causing pain, but they were dysfunctional in the sense that they weren't normal, right? So I, already, I always had a popping in my right mandibular, and that popping always happened my, throughout my whole life, you know? It's never caused any pain whatsoever. But when they decided to, you know, work on my mouth, they obviously screwed everything up because they adjusted my bite. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. So dentistry. <laughs> so as a child, I was sugar addict. And then I was going to all these dentists and I noticed that it was really, really insanely painful. So I had a lot of fillings and a lot of mercury fillings all on um, the upper arch. 
And those fillings, when the dentist would put them in, they would fall out. Um, I would swallow them, all kinds of, and the dentists were drunk. I could smell the breath, I could smell their breath. It was like sort of, Florida is like a really weird state, okay? So you got to understand <laughs> that the people there are also very weird. So the dentists were all drunk and everyone's sort of a haphazard. They're prescribing Percocets and opiates like they're candy. I mean, I got, at 16, they're giving me Percocets. What the? I mean, it's just crazy, okay? So anyways, I'm like, I developed this hatred for dentistry because of all that, all those traumatic experiences as a child. So then I, when I moved out to Las Vegas, um, I, one of my veneers on my front teeth, um, it come cracked and they put, they had to put on a crown. So you had to get veneers when you were a child because you ate a lot of and drank a lot of sugary stuff. No. So the two front veneers, you know, this is crazy. I dove into a shallow end of a pool as a kid and busted the two front veneers in like elementary school. Okay. I mean, the two front teeth. And sort of looked like Dracula. I loved it. But anyways, <laughs> so, so anyways, they put on veneers. I guess they should have put on crowns, but whatever. They put on veneers. And 20 years later, I'm in Vegas. And then I get my first Vegas experience where they put on a crown. And I'm suffering in pain. And they're just giving me more pain pills. And then I go back and he does a root canal. And the root canal it stinks so bad that the whole room starts to puke. That's how rotted the, the root was. It was just so nasty, right? So then I'm like, oh my God, this guy just let me suffer for months without telling me it was, I needed a root canal. <laughs> he just kept giving me more pain pills. So then I'm just like, oh my God, I can't go back. I can't go back. And then I come down with celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disorder, which sort of demonstrates itself as a uh, sort of like acid reflux. Like you don't know what's going on. This happened back, this happened like 10 years ago when no one knew what celiac disease was. So I suffered from celiac disease, not knowing it. I'm puking up bile at night and all my teeth enamel are becoming rotten. And, and as a result of the celiac disease going undiagnosed for five years, I come down with cancer of the stomach lining. And that's really where I start to figure everything out. That's, that's the beginning of my journey. Um, because once the cancer covered up the gut villi, I stopped taking in nutrition and I started to starve. And by the time I, by the time I figure out what's going on, I'm in stage four stomach cancer and basically i've got three months to live so uh even though you're still eating your body's just not absorbing the nutrients that's right i'm not absorbing the nutrients i'm eating more and more food and so unlike cancer normal cancer where people get skinny because of the chemo and all that kind of stuff i am getting bigger and i end up with a blockage so i can't even pass you know uh, i can't even i can't even use the restroom really so i went that's that's when I'm like, oh my god, this is this is over. So they did a blood test, and then yeah, it was like cancer, cancer, cancer. And I was like, they said, well, of course they wanted to do chemo, but I didn't have insurance, 
this is back before 2014, before Obamacare. So um, I was just like, no, I'm not doing chemo. I'm going raw vegan and I'm going to start ingesting uh, marijuana. And because I had read that THC kills the cancer, especially if it's localized. So it takes time. So it took me five years to get cancer free. Um, but I went raw vegan and I basically ingested a ton of marijuana. Um, and so you, you were eating the marijuana as opposed to smoking or vaping or? Correct. So that's, that's the key to the whole thing, really. So the bioavailability, so what's, what happens if you eat raw marijuana? What happens if you eat raw marijuana? Nothing happens, right? Because it's not made bioavailable. And to make it bioavailable, you have to decarboxylate it. And that's just a fancy term for basically breaking off the carbon atom so that the cannabinoid be, can be ingested and, and utilized, thus bioavailable. So all you got to do is heat it up <laughs> to decarboxylate it. So everybody uses all these fancy terms. Basically, take some raw marijuana, heat it up to the proper temperature for the right amount of time, you know, and basically as a result of that, um, you can ingest it and then it takes huge, huge, huge effects, high, great medicinal effects. It's also a psychotropic. And as a result of that, your neural pathways are decalcified and you create new neural pathways because you're growing brain cells and you're pushing yourself to create new experiences by, by enjoining a self-healing journey. And that's the thing, right? So most people release their power to the doctor, you know? And I never did that. I mean, through this whole dental nightmare, the last five, seven years of dental nightmare, and I'm still in it, I never once said, I totally trust you. <laughs> I release my, my intellect, my heart, my mind, my body, my soul. I release it to you. And I totally trust you because you're God, you know? And that's how we treat these doctors. They are the high priests and they're just a bunch of moronic kids who are, it's like the wild west, okay? They don't know shit. Where are all the old guys? I can't find them. Where's all the wisdom? Where's all the training and the apprenticeships and the mentorships? Where is all this? It's not all big doctors are entrepreneurs. All they care about is making prescriptions and making money paying off their student loans, basically becoming superior to everyone else. I mean, that's their goals. Like, where, what happened to the old school dentistry? What happened to just the neighborhood doctor? Where are those people? So circling back to the stomach cancer, a couple of things. So I, I have heard that uh, marijuana is, uh, promotes neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. Yeah. What did the doctor, oh, and so it also sounds, um, I'm not sure if ironic's the right word, but that you didn't have insurance, therefore you had to go another route for treatment. Sort yeah. of an irony there. Mm. Uh, and what did your doctors think about your choice of treatment and how your body responded and the, the curing of the cancer? So, so um, I never went back to those doctors, obviously. Um, but I can tell you that all the doctors I talked to 
look at it with disdain and they dismiss it immediately as if I never said it. They go into this state of denial and delusion so they can maintain their own sanity. Because if they ever face the facts that what they're doing causes more harm than good, then they will have to take responsibility for their actions. And that's never going to happen. Okay, so yeah, you get through the cancer thing, through your own treatment, your own protocol, and then we go into the dental stuff more? Yeah, so basically, so this is all going on at the same time. So I'm, I'm dealing with the cancer and the celiac disease, and I'm dealing with dentistry. So now understand, I've been to over 30 dentists in five years, okay? And all of them, almost all, 99% of them were in the Las Vegas Valley. And how come you're originally going to them if you're not having any pain from your your rotated jaw? Okay, so I was really originally going to them. Um, it's not from the pain from the jaw. I was, I was okay. So that's cranial malformation creates um, basically crowding of the teeth, right? So the lower front teeth were crowding so much so that they were causing pain. In other words, they were crisscrossing with one another and they were exploding outward because the, the pressure was pushing them out, right? Because they were crossing. So as a result of that pressure pushing the lower front teeth out, I was banging against the upper front teeth and the lower front teeth were becoming so thin and so sensitive that even breathing was causing extreme pain. So I went in there and to the first dentist, he was an HMO dentist. I got the insurance, the Obamacare for 2014. <laughs> and I go to my first dentist appointment going, thank God I can, cause you know, basically I'm indigent. I don't have any money. I'm totally dependent on other people. I'm a caregiver, which means I make less than, you know, $20,000 a year and blah, 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 blah. So anyways, I go finally make this one HMO dentist and he, uh, t says that he can bring out the six front teeth, which are all mangled and screwed up, and one's got a temporary in it. And I'm, I'm like, okay, you'll bring out the six front teeth, and that way I won't be banging against the upper upper front teeth. He's like, yeah, we can do that. So, anyways, I go back in, we I go through lots of back and forth, and he goes in to install the six front teeth. He gets me upside down. He, I take a pain pill. He starts doing the Novocaine. Then he starts a hard sale tactic where he tries to enforce a full mouth reconstruction. This is why I'm drugged upside down, totally vulnerable and totally scared and frightened and shaking. This is like the first time I've been to a dentist in like 10 to 15 years. And I got autism and I'm totally freaked out. So he's got me upside down drugged and he starts to enforce a full mouth reconstruction. I'm like, no, 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 no. And then he finally convinces me to do eight of the upper front teeth. So he adds like, he adds like, no, 10. He, ties, he convinces me to do 10 of the upper front teeth. He goes, and I'll throw in the last two teeth for free. So he says, he's basically saying, and because it's HMO, it's only like $250 a crown. I'm like, okay. Uh, and for folks who aren't familiar with, what's an HMO? So an HMO means you got to go to their doctor. So it's a type of insurance plan where they enforce the doctor that you have to go to. So only certain doctors, like certain scam artists, 
actually accept that, you know? So it's just like, it's a way for them to make money, but more importantly, it's a way for them to make, make as much money in a short amount of time as possible. So the idea behind an HMO dentist, it's called drilling for dollars. It's a very common story. Um, and they've been doing this for decades and no one's done crap about it. Um, and we're gonna do something about it. But anyways, the idea here is that you do as many procedures in a short amount of time as possible so you can build the HMO company as much money as possible. And that's basically it. Man. Okay, so anyways, so I go to him and he basically does the upper arch. I go into extreme pain. And at the very end, when he, before he finishes, he decides to shave down my lower front teeth without my permission. And he shaves off three to four millimeters off of the lower six to eight teeth, lower six to eight teeth. He just stands back like he's mowing the grass with three passes. He goes, rank, rank, rank. With three passes, he shaves down my lower front teeth. I lose my mind. I jump out of my chair. I run out of his office. I call him. I've been in total pain. I didn't understand what was going on, but he had destroyed all my guidance in my mouth. And as a result, he released all the muscle tension in my head. And as a result of that, I went into um, uh, lower back failure. I ended up with a bulging disc. And it just became this insane nightmare. It's all sure. connected. Yeah, David, explain how that is all connected. How what he did had this ripple effect. Yeah. So that's the, that's this is that's the journey, right? The journey is in understanding how one they can get away with this and two, how is this even possible? How could they cause this much pain? You know? And I'm just like this is wild. So I didn't know this at the time. But I've been seeing an osteopath for the last year and a half. And this osteopath saved my life. Osteopathy is, to me, the only effective form of medicine in the world. Um, so when you combine osteopathy with, you know, a ovo-vegan diet, ovo means egg, so egg and, and vegan diet, when you combine that, with an over vegan diet and um, herbal medicine like marijuana, and you're ingesting that. So if you do all three of those things, you can basically reverse about 80% of disease. And this is what the science is showing us, you know? And for so, folks yeah. who aren't familiar with an osteopath, what kind of uh, doctor are they? They call them a, a doctor of osteopathy. Now it's it's to me you gotta look it up. So but but mostly it's really about it's energy work, but it's energy work in the sense that we have a doctor of osteopathy who is also an MD who's been trained in every single aspect. So they go to an additional four years. So a family medical doctor will go and get his MD degree, right? An osteopathy will get an MD degree and an osteopathy degree. So he goes for an additional four years, an osteopath does. So an osteopath can prescribe medicines, can do pain pills, can do everything a regular MD can do. But in addition to that, 
they have a comprehensive understanding of the body and how it all works together. So what an osteopath does, a good one, and not, there's not that many out there, um, they'll work with your energy and release trauma points by using their energy to activate your energy and make your body so that it works in a self-healing model. So in other words, he'll help bring your body back to, to homeostasis, and as a result of that, you can self-heal. So he, he basically helped bring my back in the balance. He helped bring everything back into balance and he helped bring me out of pain. So when I went to see him, I had suffered a herniated disc in my lower back as a result of all this. That herniated disc, he got me out of pain within three weeks with no pain medication, okay? And no surgery required. So, okay, so that was my first dentist. He totally screwed me up. I went to my second dentist. He puts in three different sets of temporaries over a period of 11 months. He tries to enforce me to get a full mouth reconstruction for $50,000. Every single time I see him for 11 months, hey, just pay me 50 grand, just pay me 50 grand. We'll fix all this, we'll fix all this. Just give me 50 grand. We gotta redo your whole mouth. We gotta redo your whole mouth. Over and over again, pressure, pressure, pressure. They make you think you actually need to do it. Like there's no way you're gonna be out of pain if you don't do what we tell you. So then I go to another doctor and another doctor and another doctor and every single doctor wouldn't see me, wouldn't treat me. They didn't wanna be involved. I went to see prosthodontists, which are supposed to be the experts. I'm talking to the dental board. I'm just going every which way, shape, or form, trying to get my way out of this mess and come to find out that all this stuff was done on purpose. Okay, so there's this one school in Nevada, in, in Nevada, continuing educational school for dentistry in Nevada, and they teach uh, full mouth reconstruction as a way to help people out of headaches and TMJ pain and all this other kind of stuff. And but, TMJ pain for folks, TMJ? Yeah, so TMJ pain is like, so like, like the, click, the clicking in my right mandibular, if that had caused pain in any way, shape or form, they would call that TMJ pain. So it's basically joint pain, mandibular joint pain, right? So that's what they're, that's what they're saying, TMJ pain. So they're so anyways, saying that this full mouth reconstruction will cure whatever pain ails you. Yeah, that's what, they, that's what they're promoting, right? That's what they tell their patients. But understand that what they tell the doctors on their website is a totally different story. What they tell their doctors on the website is, come to us, we'll increase your revenues by more than 50% guaranteed. Whoa, that is, that's the drop the mic right there. I mean, that's insane. We have here a, a for-profit continuing education system for, for medical purposes that is simply promoting the idea that we'll make you more money if you come to us. I mean, that's pretty wild, man. And they, they, call, they call this occlusal science, but understand that there are other occlusal schools out there, um, not, the, not just the one in Nevada. And these other occlusal schools are awesome. I mean, they're just totally awesome. Like, for example, my favorite one, can I mention their name if it's all positive? Yeah. <laughs> so the Dawson Academy, 
And the Dawson Academy is another example of an occlusal school. Now typically understand that prostodontists are the guys that are masters of occlusion. Occlusion simply means bite, right? So bite. So when your bite is off, you end up in all kinds of headaches and all kinds of problems, right? So all you have to do instead of a full mouth reconstruction is adjust people's bite. And that's what prostodontists do. So prostodontists are masters of occlusion. They go to an additional three years of schooling over a dentist, right? So they're the masters, but now there's this for-profit continuing education system that is designed to teach regular dentists the science of occlusion. And the Dawson Academy is the best one at it. And here's their approach, it's really simple. We practice, this is what they say, we practice an approach called minimally invasive, one tooth at a time, period. That's it. So if you ever go to a dentist and they want to do something that is more than one tooth at a time, you make sure you do your research because it, the chances are they're gonna screw up your bite if you do more than one tooth at a time. And as a result of them screwing up your bite, they will recommend a full mouth reconstruction so that they can charge you 50 to 100 grand, right? And that's the goal. And I've had people tell me that, actual experts, guys in the industry who've been dealing with this for 30 years, they've been saying, we, one guy said, I see it as my mission to stop this one Las Vegas occlusal school. And this another guy, another, another guy said, you know, it's, it's, they call it voodoo science. Like, and these guys are like MD surgeons. I mean, we got people telling me all this stuff. So it's, everyone knows what's going on and no one's doing anything about it because of the, on the money. It's just huge money. Can you imagine going from $500,000 a year to a million dollars a year in dentistry? I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge bump. Um, and that's what these guys are making. They're making over a million dollars a year and they're going hunting in Africa and bringing back big game. And, you know, these guys, that's ridiculous. And these guys have little tiny things and stupid strip malls and they're making a million dollars a year and there's no standards. I mean, the whole standard of care idea is crazy, but anyways, so as I go through this process, that's what I end up figuring out. I end up figuring out that this whole thing's on purpose. It's all about making money. Everyone's in the know. It's all hush hush. And I'm the guy out there exposing it. And as a result of that, they're attacking me. They're not helping me. They're, they're trying to avoid me. They're, they're doing everything they can to not help, you know? And that's, that's sort of the exposure, right? So I'm going around dentist to dentist to dentist. Everyone's telling me something off the record. Everyone's educating me about what's going on. Some guys want to charge me a hundred grand. Some guys want to do this. Some guys want to do that. And I'm just like, you know, I just listen. I take notes and I slowly but surely build my case. And my case is un unstoppable at this point. Like it's totally unstoppable. I mean, so as a result, <clears throat> I have been now working with the governor to basically revamp the entire licensing board system in the state of Nevada, right? So this is where we get to the, the crux of the matter. 
So as I go through this whole mess, I file dental board complaints. Now, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a dental board. So in every state in America, there are licensing boards that are supposed to be overseeing the licensees, right? So there's a dental board and they're supposed to be overseeing the dentists and the, and the uh, dental assistants and the, and the mouth cleaning people. Protecting patients. Yeah, and they're supposed to be protecting patients. But that's not what happened, right? So for the last 30 years, our dental board in Nevada, and from what I understand, and all the dental boards in America, all have licensed practitioners on the board. Now what that means is, is that you have dentists overseeing dentists. Now, that's crazy, right? If they're all in on the game, and the game is drilling for dollars, then you can't have dentists overseeing dentists because the standard of care will become so convoluted that not, e not even a good person, a good practitioner, will be able to decipher what the standard of care is. So for example, the for-profit motive, right? So that's really the problem, the for-profit motive, right? So we're talking about healthcare, but yet we're talking about a for-profit motive where doctors and dentists have to make money to pay their bills and pay off their student loans and all that kind of stuff, while at the same time, supposedly helping people with a minimally invasive approach that doesn't ruin their lives or doesn't cause harm, mm -hmm. right? But with this dentistry problem, they cause irreversible harm in a large population. Um, and that irreversible harm gives them the ability to make money off of that patient for their entire lives. And that's the goal of what's going on today, you know? And so anyways, I get to the dental board, I file some complaints, they end up protecting the dentist, they find them not guilty, and their offenses are so egregious and they're just so out there that I cannot believe they found them not guilty. So then I start diving into the whole system and how they do it. And I'm like, oh my God, it's all designed so that they can do this. So basically our dental board in Nevada assigns one investigator and that investigator determines everything. So there's no review of that investigator's decision. There's no oversight of that investigator's decision. Um, there's no checks and balances whatsoever. And it's a lot of power in one A person. lot of power. And that investigator is assigned by the executive director of the dental board. And that investigator depends upon this money as supplementary income because they're such bad dentists that they don't make any money that everyone hates them, right? So one of my investigators was a dentist I actually went to, okay? And he should have bowed out for conflicts of interest, but he didn't. He found the dentist not guilty. And that one dentist who was an investigator actually put in a temporary tooth and then sent an assistant with, a, with an actual wrench to pull out the temporary, an actual wrench. So it's just insane what they're doing. So anyways, so, so, that's, so that's how it was. So now the governor, Governor Sisolak has come in and he is totally changing the game. So he has created this, passed a bill, he's created a whole new commission. 
Um, and he's made, created checks and balances. And this commission is going to be made up of doctors and nurses and public members and uh, health and human services and Medicare. And their whole plan is to figure out a way to reduce healthcare costs and to basically do patient protection. So it's a patient protection commission, right? So let's get into that real quick. I mean, Scott, what, what do you think? <laughs> of all healthcare dollars are spent on the last three years of life hmm. in America, right? 90% of all healthcare dollars in the last three years of life. So what's that mean in human terms? In human terms, that means that old people are being experimented on and exploited for the last three years of their lives so that hospitals and doctors and administrators can make money to build their new cardiological wings and buy all their new fancy equipment and pay themselves fat money, right? So this whole system, medical device industry, the pharmacological industry, and big and the big hospital and big doctors and all that kind of stuff, big medicine, right? All these guys have joined forces to basically bankrupt our country and bankrupt our citizenry and make everyone homeless and basically profiteer off of that. So when you look at that, 90% of all healthcare dollars in the last three years of life, you're looking at basically all these old people and all these family members being shamed into consenting for these procedures because they feel so guilty that they haven't been around their grandparents or whatever, or their parents. They feel so guilty that they'll do anything to keep them alive, not realizing that the probability of them coming out better as a result of the next procedure is so small, so minuscule, that all you're really doing is torturing them with fear. Because they are sitting there in the hospital with breathing tubes and they are scared shitless. They are losing their minds with fear and they would consent to anything to stay alive, not knowing that they're just gonna be tortured and that their recovery would be decades if they ever recovered at all. So this, uh, that's horrendous. Then add that statistic to the fact that the third leading cause of death in America is medical error. Holy smokes. Now you combine those two things and you go, wow, what is going on? So if it's the third leading cause of death. We're talking about you know, 300,000 people a year. And that's, that's what we can count. So you got to figure there's another couple hundred thousand that are unreported. So anyway, so figure that. So 300,000 300, people a year are dying from medical error. Half of those errors are pharmacological. Oops, we, oh, we didn't mean to give you that medicine and that medicine. And that's because all these doctors are so focused and so compartmentalized that no one is approaching healthcare from a holistic perspective and from a patient point of view. In other words, we need to track a patient and in their wholeness. We need to know where's the depression levels at? What's their diet like? Do they have acid reflux? Or do they have sleep apnea? What are all these different things that are contributing to their lethargy? Let's not just focus on the aortic stenosis, for example. Let's focus on this whole person. 
because the risk factors involved in any surgery are so immense that the increased mortality rate is obvious. And the fact that we're risking our old people's lives so that, so that hospitals and the medical industry can make money, it's, it's just, and then be tortured, it's just, it's just so wrong. It's just all so wrong. And then if you got to figure, so if half of them are pharmacological errors for third leading cause of death, and the other half are like infections. So, I mean, it's like, what are we doing? Like, why are we cutting people open if they're going to die from infection? And now antibiotics and like, and then you start going down the rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole is diet, right? So guess what's going on in our diet? All of our, all of our animals are being fed antibiotics. We ingest those animals. And as a result of that, we receive a low dose of antibiotics throughout our entire lives. That low dose of antibiotics actually empowers the bad bacteria in our microbiomes. And that's what causes 80% of all disease, okay? The fact is 80% of all disease is derived from the gut. All disease starts in the gut because of these bad bacteria, right? So antibiotics are a big, are a big deal. And we shouldn't be prescribing them the way we're prescribing them. And we certainly shouldn't be giving them to our animals. And then when you look at, and that, so let, let me give you the one verbiage that really helps people on it, drive this point home, right? So all disease starts in the gut. So that means that diabetes starts in the gut. Now, everyone agrees that sugar contributes to diabetes. There's no doubt, 100%. But what if I told you that meat and dairy and bread also are the big contributors. In fact, red meat and processed meat are the two biggest factors to diabetes. What, what would you think about that? I hadn't heard that. I had heard yeah. recently that they thought it was maybe uh, enteroviruses. It's crazy. So the reason this is, is simple. There are good bacteria and bad bacteria in the microbiome. Now the microbiome is throughout our entire bodies, right? So we have a microbiome in our mouth, we have a microbiome in our lungs, there's a microbiome on every single organ, and there's a microbiome, the vast majority of our microbiome is in the gut, okay? Now a microbiome simply means that we have all kinds of bacterial DNA running throughout our bodies, right? So we're actually made up of more bacterial DNA than human DNA. And that means that we need to work with the bacteria. <laughs> we have to work with them because if we don't work with them, then they will kill us, right? Because what ends up happening is the bad bacteria, which aren't necessarily bad, they're only bad when they dominate the microbiome. And the only time they dominate the microbiome is when we feed the bad bacteria everything they want all day long. And what do they love? They love meat, bread, dairy, and sugar. That's what they love more than anything else in the world. So when you feed the bad bacteria meat, bread, dairy, and sugar three times a day, which is the American diet, then basically the bad bacteria dominate, they end up feeding off their own bile 
So they produce stomach bile. The bad bacteria aren't bad when they're in balance. When they're in balance, they help us digest food, okay? So it's really important. And they produce nutrients that we intake. So the bacteria are really good for us. They really help us in all, so many ways. But when they dominate, when the bad bacteria dominates, they excrete a toxic chemical that causes inflammation. That inflammation triggers your epigenome, which then triggers your predisposition to disease, which you inherited from your grandparents. Okay, so that's epigenealogy. It's not that big of a deal. Basically, you become more susceptible if your grandparents ate poorly during their formative years, you become more susceptible to certain diseases. And that's the epigenealogical effect. It skips a generation and it basically makes it so that you're more susceptible. So now to get sick, it's really easy because you're more susceptible. So as a result of their malnutrition, you're more susceptible, you eat meat, bread, dairy, and sugar all day, then your bad bacteria dominate, they cause inflammation, that inflammation triggers the epigenome, triggers your predisposition to disease, and then you get diabetes, cancer, heart disease, whatever it is. Again, it's all about the microbiome. Get everything else out of your head. Get all this stuff, all this compartmentalized scientific bullshit. We are a symbiotic human body that depends on bacteria for our survival. And if we do not feed the good bacteria with fruits, nuts, vegetables, and legumes, if we do not feed them fruit, nuts, vegetables, and legumes, then we will never be in balance with our good and bad bacteria. And to be in balance simply means homeostasis. And homeostasis simply means that we are able to self-heal because our body's functions are all working. When we're not in homeostasis, we are under attack. And when our body is under attack, it's in fight mode. And then when we're in fight mode, basically it can go either way, <laughs> you know? And that's sort of the scenario. So okay. what's a probiotic, Scott? A probiotic is simply good bacteria. And why, do, why don't probiotics work? Probiotics don't work because we're not feeding them. You have to feed the good bacteria. So you can eat probiotics all day long. It's not going to do anything. You have to create a whole society of good bacteria, and you have to empower them so that they can take on the bad bacteria and create balance. So what's the most effective foods, the most effective prebiotic foods that you can eat are raw garlic, cooked onions, and asparagus. These are the three most effective foods. They have lots of inulin. And then green bananas, which has this non-soluble starch. Again, and that's a prebiotic. So that's really, what, that's, that's really where you want to go. Then the most effective prebiotic on the planet is bioavailable marijuana. So the cannabinoids actually empower the good bacteria and invigorate them in such a way that they produce more bacteria so quickly and, and empower them and invigorate them so much that you can bring homeostasis back, back to your body twice as fast than any other way.
So by ingest, because guess what? The plant material, actual plant material, the actual herbal plant material is considered a prebiotic because it's hard to digest. And that's what garlic is. It's hard to digest. That's what onions are. It's hard to digest. And that's what the good bacteria love. Now, warning for anyone who wants to get on a prebiotic diet, in the very beginning, you will suffer from, you will probably suffer from um, an extreme deep gastritis. Do, uh, are you on probiotics or prebiotics? Prebiotics. Pre okay, what's the difference between the pro and the pre? Okay, so probiotics are simply just good bacteria. Okay, prebiotics are food that feeds the good bacteria. Yeah. Okay. So prebiotics, so when you're eating a lot of gar raw garlic and onions and asparagus and lots of hard to digest foods, in the middle of the night, you have to, you have to burp a little, you know? You have to force yourself to burp. A lot of people find that discomforting, but it only lasts for like 30, 60, 90 days, you know? It's not, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a lifelong deal. <laughs> you know? Okay. So it sounds like you're saying on your riff about the microbiome here that uh, there's like a medical error within the system around nutrition and around uh, chronic illness and that they're not paying attention or enough attention to the microbiome and its influence. Yeah, exactly. So when talk to a talk to a surgeon, right? A surgeon has been trained specifically to know that inside the body is a sterile environment, right? They think that every organ is sterile. They to this day, okay. But guess what? On every organ, there's tons of bacteria, tons. So th what they're doing is they're introducing bad bacteria when they're doing surgery. And that bad bacteria, that's when everything goes to hell, right? So that's so that just tells you that just tells you how far away we are. We're 50 years away from this information being executed within the educational system, right? So we have an educational foundation that is so deeply flawed, and so deeply flawed in the sense that we have an FDA which was founded by a bunch of chemical engineers, a bunch of petrochemical engineers, okay? FDA overseeing all this crap. We have a bunch of pharmacological research being funded by for-profit companies to our educational system. Our educational professors are selling out for this money and falsifying research to please their overlords, right? So the whole system is being corrupted from its foundation and has been since the very beginning because these chemical engineers actually believe that, pharma <laughs> that pharmacology is effective. They actually believe that ingesting petrochemicals as a, is a medicine. This is insanity in every step of the way. All we're doing is we're basically devastating our microbiomes and our guts and we're making ourselves more susceptible to disease because of this. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing with corn syrup. That's what we're doing with all the stupid drugs that we're taking. That's what we're doing with our diets. All of it. And just look back, just look back over time. 
all this shit didn't really start to happen where all these kids are sick in elementary school. I don't remember anyone being sick in elementary school. I'm sure they were, but they were probably taken out of school. But now everyone has diabetes, everyone's sick, everyone's big. And all you gotta do is go back to the 90s and look when everything changed. Everything changed when they introduced GMOs, herbicides, GMOs big time, and herbicides and pesticides became even more used. Now we've known that herbicides and pesticides were detrimental since the 60s. We've known this, okay? But when they introduced GMOs, we then began dousing our wheat with this stupid chemical herbicide from Monsanto. <laughs> and <clears throat> now understand what a GMO is. A GMO is a genetically modified plant. So they'll splice in DNA from a bacteria to a corn plant. And they'll splice in that DNA because that DNA is resistant to the herbicide, right? So that means that you can douse this plant with all this herbicide and it won't kill it. And that's the only way you can make a GMO plant. So as a result of this, we are now spraying all of our wheat crops in America with glyphosate, which is the herbicide I'm talking about. We are dousing it two weeks before harvest, okay? So, so as to create a greater yield in the plant. For some reason, when the plant dies, it produces more wheat, right? So we just douse it with this glyphosate two weeks before harvest. Then we make all this bread out of it. We eat all this bread. We're eating all this herbicide. And guess what the herbicide does? It kills all the bacteria in your gut, okay? So as a result of this, you can see sort of a cascading effect, right? And I call it a Nazi-esque eugenics program designed to kill off all of our old people while profiteering off of their suffering. And that to me is the most evil and the most prolific form of evil in this world today. It is modern medicine in every way, shape and form. And we have these young surgeons in there in their thirties and forties thinking they are God incarnate, thinking they can save everybody and then when someone dies on their table, they totally, totally operate in denial. Like it never happened. So okay. we've, so it's we've, all about yeah, so we've touched on a couple of different medical error things. Your whole personal experience with the dental industry, repeated uh, poor experiences. Uh, your conceptualization around the microbiome and how that's sort of embedded medical error in our nutritional approach. Amen. The medical error of what they're doing to the elderly, over-treating, doing these procedures that the elderly wouldn't want. And I know from reading studies of physicians, when they're asked, what do you want your end of life care to be like? They do not want to be sustained. They do not want the heroic efforts that they seem to, to do. Um, but you also mentioned that uh, recently uh, you were a caretaker uh, for an elderly friend. Um, share a bit about that experience and how that ties into the medical error as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I've been a, a caregiver for the last 15 years to a friend of mine. She was my department chair when I was an adjunct professor. 
at UMLP. Basically, about three years ago, she um, went into the doctor and they identified aortic stenosis. Well, a big thanks to David Moore for sharing his bouts with medical error and with cancer. David definitely has an unconventional approach to his own health and how to treat cancer. In recent years, we've seen the political and scientific validation of anecdotal reports of benefits of medical marijuana. Perhaps its anti-cancer properties will also be validated with quality research in the near future. David's experience surely adds credence to that endeavor. In part two of the interview, David will tell us how his good friend Patty went in for a routine operation, how it went horribly wrong, and how the surgeons turned their error into a moneymaker in what David refers to as a Nazi-esque eugenics program. David will also tell us the secret to his success when he endeared himself to the new state governor and took on the powerful and profiteering Nevada Dental Board. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and please leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a podcast patron. And if you're in need of a counselor for your own experience with medical error for living with chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others.